Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and this is an unusual episode for The Commentary. It's designed to introduce you to a set of recordings we've been doing at Grace recently called Vision Talks. Vision, worship, and life at Grace is the broad territory that The Commentary covers, but with Vision Talks, we've been doing something a little different. These live recordings are short talks on specific topics, basic concepts that inform the overall vision of our church. You can find them all online at graceforsufalls.org, but in this episode, I'm going to share the first five so you can listen to them all at once. First, I'll explain how worship is what we're all about, and then I'll answer the question, how big do we need to be? I'll explain that our mission statement actually means something, and then insist that a theology of grace must create a culture of grace. Finally, I'll lay out the reason why historic Christianity is our goal. By the end, I hope you'll be hooked. Welcome to Vision Talks. Today is a special day. If you already have an order of worship, you can see on the cover that we're celebrating our anniversary. Uh, Technically, we're doing it a little early because it's on Tuesday, the 14th, that we will be 13 years since our particularization or kind of our our establishment as a self-governing church. But uh, we're gonna observe that today. And so we're definitely spending some time today reflecting on our gratitude for grace and for what God has done in our church over the years. But whenever you think about the past, it's inevitable that you start thinking about the future as well. And I think we're kind of at an interesting time in the course of our church where it seems like we have new and interesting challenges on the horizon. And as a result, as we think about our anniversary, I think it's also good to think about what uh, the future holds and and the the year ahead holds as well. So I'm going to take an opportunity, if you will pardon me, uh, every once in a while during Sunday school to uh, talk about the vision of our church, where we've come from, where we're heading as part of the conversation that, that we have here on Sunday mornings because it's an opportunity for us to talk about that stuff, maybe to ask questions about those things and understand kind of how the, the, the confessional identity of our church connects to like who we actually are on a day-to-day basis and the kind of church that we're trying to be. When I think about the year ahead, I think, wow, we've got some challenges that we've never faced before. Uh, we are looking at uh, calling an associate pastor, Dan. That's something our congregation is going to have to make a decision about. That's a huge commitment. That's something we haven't done before, at least not in this way. Uh, We also are looking at the constraints of our space. We're, We're outgrowing the space that we're in, but there's not really another space for us to just slide over into. What that means is we have to think about uh, what are we going to do? Like, it, maybe that means multiple services, and that's a challenge, but it's something that we have to uh, think how to do well, you know, as a church. What does that look like? So 
Those are the kinds of questions that the elders of the church and the deacons of the church have been asking ourselves. And I think it's a good conversation for all of us to be having as well. Like, what does grace look like? What, what's important to us? What are our values as a church? And so, I don't know, I thought it'd be helpful just to spend a little bit of time thinking about that, talking about that. Um, and then we will look at the role of magistrates and uh, you'll see how it all beautifully ties together. Uh, Josh and I were having a conversation this week that kind of triggered a thought in my mind, which was um, a question is often asked, especially from the outside. If you're on the outside looking in, you're looking at a particular church and you're asking yourself, like, like what does that church do? Like, what is their unique contribution? What is the thing that makes them who they are? And for different churches, it, it, it's a different thing. So there are some churches we were talking about where, where they might be known for like the, a school, right? That this is the church that runs that school. I have a friend whose church has an English as a second language ministry that has occurred for years, like something that people in the church developed, that the church supported, and it kind of became a signature ministry for the church, so that when people think about that church, they think about that ESL program and the thing that they do. So as you think about our church and you think about that question, uh, there are two things I want you to think about. First of all is, I don't think we have that thing yet. I don't think we have the thing that you would look at and say, well, that's the, the extra thing that Grace does, and that's how they're known in the community. Right? There may be various things that people in our church are involved in, and that's good, and that's what we encourage. But we as a church do not yet have that. Partly, I think, because God hasn't yet done that in us. Right? We haven't yet found what that thing might be. But there's also a sense in which we do have that thing, but it's kind of hidden in plain sight. And that's the thing I want you to think about a little bit. Um, we talk about this theologically a lot, that uh, human beings, because we're made in God's image, we're made with, with purpose and meaning, and we're given a task, we're given work to do. In the garden, the work is the work of cultivation, right? It's, it's making culture, uh, in a literal sense, cultivating the ground, but in a larger sense, like doing the human stuff that we do to build the world around us to give form to God's creation. So doing our work to God's glory. But in a deeper sense, like a, a more basic sense, God didn't just make us to work. He didn't just make us to form creation. He made us ultimately to glorify him and to worship him. So that if you were thinking about the human task and, and the most fundamental thing that we do as, as humans, that would have to be worship. Ironically, though, the way that we think about worship, oftentimes it's secondary. Like we... we like, take for granted, yeah, of course, we have to worship, but surely there's more to it than that. Churches will often talk about worship and the importance of worship as equipping. You've heard that term before, that, that what we do Sunday is meant to equip us to go out and do the real work of ministry, which happens out there. 
that way of speaking, I think, is uh, it's, it's good as far as it goes, but I think it obscures something because it, it depends on a devaluation of what happens here, what happens when God's people gather and worship him. When the reality is, if you're looking you know, from a cosmic scale, nothing is more important than what happens when God's people gather together and worship him. You might say, well, Mark, that's not true. Uh, surely it's more important to fulfill the Great Commission than it is to just show up and worship at church. And I see what you're saying, but, but what happens when we fulfill the Great Commission? What is it that we're doing when we fulfill the Great Commission? We are making converts? No. Disciples. And what do disciples do fundamentally? They worship. So the purpose of the Great Commission is to make worshipers, right? To, to expand that circle of worship. If you were to ask me, what's Grace's thing? Like, what is the, the fundamental thing? If, if there was only one thing that we could be known for in this community, I would like it to be the centrality of worship. That's not as, as simplistic as it may sound if you think about what worship entails. Right? If you look at our worship services, and, and I've been looking at a lot of them because it's our anniversary, so I have a, a file on my computer where every single liturgy for every service that we've had since 2013 is in a little folder and I can just look at them and I say, man, I've gotten old because <laughs> there's way too many years in this folder now. But all of them, if you look at the parts of worship, they reflect the parts of the Christian life, like what it means to be a believer, like to be in the word, to be saturated in prayer, to be obedient with the gifts that God gives us. All of those things are represented in our worship service so that like this is not a great analogy but but uh, in a just add water kind of way you might think like this is the 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 tiny uh, I don't know like pill or, or chia plant <laughs> that that you put the water on and then everything kind of grows out of it so that the the rhythm of weekly worship on the Lord's Day is, is instilling in us, inculcating in us a way of life that, that leaks out into everything. So there's a lot of different moving pieces to what we could call the vision of our church, and some of those things are, are well-trodden paths, and other ones are things we're just discovering, which is exciting. But at the heart of it all, is that commitment to worship. And if you think about it, the challenges that we face in the year ahead are all connected to that. You know, if, if you're looking at having an associate pastor, someone else to lead in worship, as we'll see Dan preaching his first sermon as a licentiate this morning, uh, not only that, but maybe his first sermon in a bow tie, as far as I know. Um, which is just going to raise the stakes really high. But uh, that's 
part of the life of worship, right? Expanding that footprint. Uh, our concerns about our space, you know, have to do with the idea of more worshipers being able to accommodate more people in the family of God. And so at the heart, like the thing we must never lose sight of, the thing that we must constantly return to again and again, no matter what else we do, no matter how much we grow, it's that commitment to worship. Last time we talked about the centrality of worship in the vision of our church. And this morning I want to talk about something a little more practical, um, which is the, the size that we aspire to be. Like how big of a church does Grace want to be? Or let's say, how big of a church does Grace need to be? It's a practical question because we are looking for a space to worship in, a larger space. In fact, tomorrow morning, we're going to go and look at a space that is right there in that little cluster of buildings, the Sioux Falls Christian um, Chapel, the gathering they call it, to see whether or not that could work for us. Uh, every move comes with trade-offs, and, and the thing we don't want to trade off is, is people, and, and we don't want to lose what we have as we grow. And so there's just a lot of factors that we want to prayerfully consider. So number one, do be praying for us as we look at that space and think about what God has for us. Uh, we do have a team of people who are working to explore a lot of different options. If you're thinking to yourself, hey, I'd like to be part of that, you can be. Uh, talk to Lyle or David Jones or Jeff Smith and they can connect you to the right thing. But what I thought might be interesting is to talk about, like as we look for space, um, like how big does it need to be? Because obviously we don't need more space than, than we uh, want to fill, but how big as a church we want to be? And I think it's a strange question, I guess, in a way, because surely all churches want to be as large as they can possibly be. You know, that you, you want to just get grow and grow and grow, right? Because eventually um, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And it would be best if they did it at our church. <laughs> but actually, with Grace, from the very beginning, we've had a different idea of what our future would look like. And it didn't involve growing and growing and growing and growing. Yes, from the kingdom standpoint, we want to see the kingdom grow and grow and grow. But Grace, as an individual church, we actually don't want to grow too much. Um, the way we often see churches grow these days is uh, multi-site. Like, so we outgrow the space we're in, and so we find another space, and we set up a camera and a screen, and we project into that space. We, we sort of extend our presence that way. And one pastor is sort of over all of these different sites. And when you hear that, you could probably think of egregious examples of, of big commercial evangelicalism. Uh, but there are also churches, really good churches, trying to be really faithful theologically uh, on the same page with us. And that's the way that they've grown because it's kind of in the air. It's like what everybody's doing, right? This is, in some sense, the easiest way to do it because it, it 
requires less in terms of, like if you have a um, you know, charismatic leader, go with me here, hypothetically, <laughs> let's, let's imagine, you know, and, and you, you, you just wanna grow and grow and grow around that personality, around that identity or whatever it is, right? So that's what we see happening a lot. Um, that's just not been our vision. The way that we've imagined things working at Grace is that at a certain point we would grow and then plant another church. And a core group of people from our church would go with a church planter to that church and would have this really good core to, to build on. And then we would continue to support that work until it was self-sufficient. And then we would do the same thing over again, but they would too. And so there'd still be growth and multiplication, but it wouldn't be uh, one church sort of growing and growing and growing. It would be many churches together growing and supporting one another. Um, the advantage to that is more churches means more pastors, means more elders, means more leadership in the community. It also means uh, differences in terms of you know geography and that sort of thing. Wouldn't it be nice if, if you could live on the west side of town and, and have a church like this church, but it's over there, but not so much like this church that it makes no point to come, you know? Or let's say, this will be hard to relate to, but, but there are actually some people who come to Grace and it's not for them. Like they like the theology or whatever, but there's something about the personality of the pastor that grates on them. Or, or they don't like the, the, the way worship goes or, you know, whatever it is, whatever that little thing is, but, but with just a slight change, maybe they would find a home there, right? The, in the natural differences you see as churches multiply. So in a sense, you know, our vision has always been that we would support the growth of the church, but we would do it sort of with an idea that, that, um, that we would maintain who we are and not grow so large that we could no longer function as a church. Right? Because a church isn't just an audience. Like a church is a community. It's a congregation. Like people have connectedness. There's oversight from elders who, if they don't know you, can hardly offer you any meaningful inputs if you can't literally talk to your own pastor without making an appointment. And even then, you know, it's unlikely. That's not really a New Testament model of doing ministry. So... So there's a point beyond which we really can't grow and still do what we have to do. So then the question is, okay, well, how large do we want to be? Practically speaking, the answer is we want to be large enough to where we could send a core group with a core you know, group leader uh, to another place in this area and plant a church and continue to support that work for as long as it needs. And so... That is the, the thing that we're looking for ultimately, right? We're looking for a building, a space that could accommodate a church of that size that is constantly looking to occasionally split off and multiply. And, and a good barometer of when it's time would be that that space gets full, right? In our ideal world, we'd find a sanctuary that had a certain limit and that limit equaled our ability to do this mission. And the way that we would know it was time again is, hey, it's getting a little full here. And we wouldn't say, we're looking for a bigger space. I wonder if, if the you know, Washington Pavilion is available or whatever. We'd say, oh, we're, we're running out of room. It must be time to plant another church. 
So that's the vision that Grace has always had about what our future would look like. Um, I think you always have to be careful when you, you say boastfully things like, well, we don't want to get too big, because God does have a way of saying, oh, that's not going to be a problem. You know, and so we've talked about this for a long time when it almost seemed kind of silly to even say things like this because we weren't even close to filling the space that we have. But now, as you can see, we're closer to that. It's time to really think about this stuff again and, and what it all means. So practically speaking, it means as you hear us you know, say we're looking for a new space, just understand that that. The contribution you make to helping us find that or be there or whatever it is, is not an investment in an ever-growing cult of personality, as if. It's, it's an investment in that vision of how the kingdom could grow in Sioux Falls. Right? We want to see churches like this multiply in this city, and this is the way that we feel God does this kind of work. So. It's, it's a really hard question to answer, like how big would that space need to be? But it, I always think like 300 to 350 people could do this. God often in our past has done more with less. So hard to say, but that's always been sort of my guesstimate that uh, that's the size of space that we're looking for. And, and it also helps if you're one of those people that has a hard time keeping track of names. You'll only ever have to keep track of, of that many people. And beyond that, we'll just say, you know what? I'm not even going to learn your name because we're going to send you off to a church plant <laughs> as soon as we can. So, okay. So, so just so you have that in mind, that, that that's maybe a little more practical window into the vision. And like I say, from time to time, we'll come back to questions like this just to be talking about this stuff. And if you have questions about it, you can obviously ask me. Uh, do it now. You can do it later, anytime. I'd like to go over something. For some of you, it may be review. For some of you, it might be the first time you've heard me talk about this. But basically, I want to tell you that our mission statement actually means something. <laughs> Because most mission statements don't. If you've had to read a mission statement before, you know that mission statements are typically written by marketing people and they don't know much about the business, so they keep it vague and inspirational. But it could mean literally anything, right? A good mission statement could fit any mission. Like as your mission changes, you don't have to change your mission statement because they're drafted that way. And that's true in the corporate world, but it's true in churches as well. Uh, maybe you have never done a, a survey of church mission statements, but I have, and they're pretty generic. They're typically some kind of uh, reformulation of the Great Commission kind of a thing. And it's not that it's bad. It's not that the language isn't good. It's often quite biblical and wonderful, but it also tells you literally nothing about that church. And it's typically something that, that every church has in common. Right? So it doesn't distinguish one vision from another, let's say. That's not the case at Grace. Our mission statement is not some you know, puffy language we came up with because there was a field in the form that said mission statement and we needed something bad. Uh, instead, 
it actually is designed to capture something central about this particular church. Um, something about us that is, I'm not going to say like at every point that it's different from everybody else, but it is certainly distinctive to us and important to us. So I'm sure most of you have memorized the mission statement, but for those who haven't, you'll find it every week on your order of worship here on the back. Um, if you ever listen to sermon podcasts, I always repeat it at the beginning of the sermon, but it's this statement here. It says, grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. And as I look at it on the back of the order of worship, there's a problem with the spacing that I need to fix. But, <laughs> but that's also an aspect of, of our vision, right? Already not yet. I want it to be perfect. It's not yet there. Um, so what I want to do this morning is just talk through this a little bit. And, and we're not going to talk through it like we might exegete a text. Instead, I just want to point out some structures to you that are there that are important to kind of call out and think about. Because these are things that if you internalize them, you'll understand what this church is all about. And you'll also have a way of talking about it to other people, which I think is, is another helpful thing about this mission statement. So uh, the things I want to call out for you, uh, first of all, is the word longing that we use very intentionally. Then I want to talk about those, those three mores, the more grace, more depth, more community. And then lastly, there's another set of threes that's in there, and it might not be as obvious, but it's seeking, finding, and sharing, where people seeking more grace can start finding their way and sharing their gifts. So that's another process that's built into that. So we'll talk about longing, grace, depth, community, and then we'll talk about seeking, finding, and sharing. If you were to look at all of those mission statements that I was talking about, you'll find that, that the way churches speak to the world around them, uh, you could probably classify them in two categories. Uh, one, there's like a message of welcome. And on the other hand, there's a message of knowledge. So most churches want to lead with the idea that, that everybody's welcome. We really want you to come. You're really welcome here. Other churches, though, and I think we could say that in Reformed churches, this might be overrepresented, uh, lead with the idea of knowledge. Knowledge is to be found here. We possess the answers to the questions that plague you, something like that. Those are typically the ways that we want to present ourselves to the world. I don't think there's anything wrong with either of those things. I want us to be a welcoming church, and I want us to be a church where you actually could find some knowledge. But what we lead with is neither of those things. What we lead with is longing. We lead with desire. And I want to explain why that is. When we think of ourselves, let's say like at our most basic level, we're not thinking of ourselves as, as completed people, the work in us finished, and now our mission is kind of to help other people be like we already are. Instead, when we think about ourselves, we think about ourselves in light of the work God is doing in us continually, like he's still working in us, right? So that the thing that we have in common with one another 
is a shared longing, not a shared fulfillment, not even a shared knowledge, right? We don't all understand the same. We haven't all been through the same things. We don't agree on everything, but we do have something in common, and it's this longing. And that's not exclusive to us either. Everyone you speak to out in the world, everyone you tell grace to, or tell about grace, shares this. Right? All human beings share this longing. Uh, other words for it, yearning. Uh, I have a quote for you. Uh, it's not from C.S. Lewis, don't worry. It's from Tolkien, the other one. It says, we all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. So when he talks about longing, he sees it as a state of exile, and he sees the frame of reference as Eden, like we're longing for something that's been lost, right? We have a sense of things aren't the way they should be. There's something tragic about the human condition, and it fills us with a sense that this isn't home. That's what he's referring to. And we might want to say there's, there's more to that longing we could talk about, that it isn't just a longing for Eden as Eden was. It's more a longing for Eden as it ought to have been, like Eden if Adam and Eve had not fallen, if they had obeyed and they, they'd continued to the glory that they might have attained, something like that, something that we look forward to now. But that sense of longing, incompleteness, of a wholeness that can only be found outside of ourselves, that's the yearning that we're talking about, right? That's the thing that we have in common. And that's the thing I, I don't want you to ever forget. Like, we're not here because we have it all figured out. We're not here because we have all the answers. We're not here because people desperately need us to teach them what we already know. All of those things have some kind of degree of truth, but at the most basic level, we're sinners at the foot of the cross in need of grace constantly. Like, we feel that yearning within us. Whatever God has done in us, the thing that we feel most is what has not yet been done. That's the idea. And that's a point of connection that we have to the world around us. And that's why we talk about longing. Because we want to be able to, to connect with, with a, a need people actually have. And that's also true for that three-part structure, more grace, more depth, and more community. Like that's the thing we're longing for, more grace, more depth, more community. Um, here's the thing. The reason that we talk that way that we talk about longing for more grace, more depth, and more community, is that that makes sense to people in a way that longing for more 17th century Reformed confessionalism does not. <laughs> I don't know if you've had this experience before, but walking up to people on the street and you know, striking up conversations about election and predestination going up to people and saying, hey, what's your take on Protestant scholasticism? It gets a bad rap, in my opinion. I think we could use more of it. These aren't questions people have. These aren't things they're, they're doing. No one is walking down the streets of Sioux Falls wondering if, if the Puritans might have the answers. I wish they were, and I want them to. But something has to, to, to do the same work of, of capturing the imagination, but, but in words that are more relatable, right? 
But the thing about it is, it's, it's the same idea. If you're longing for more grace, you won't find more grace than you will here. This vision of God and how he works in the Westminster standards is the most uh, thoroughgoing expression of grace that you will ever find. Right? So if you're longing for more grace, this is where you'll find it here. It's just that you can't always name your longings. Right? You know what's missing, but you don't know what would actually fulfill. Same thing with depth. Right? We're surrounded by, by churches calling to us and saying, hey, come be a part of our church. But you know the reality is that oftentimes in the church we take really hard questions and we slap really easy answers onto them. And then we say, don't ask more. You know, This is the official answer, just accept it. That works if you want to be convinced. But if you have genuine doubts or struggles, it looks superficial, it looks like maybe there are no answers. So you might find yourself in a city, as many people here do, surrounded by churches, but longing for more depth and thinking that the, the real hard questions are not even being asked in these places, let alone answered. Same thing for community. This, this one's hard because like literally every church will trumpet its commitment to community, but you have to dig down into what that means. Right? What does it mean to long for community? Well, I think our ideas of community in the 21st century are very uh, consumeristic. They're very individualistic. Like when I think about, I need a community, how would I find it? I start thinking, who shares my interests? Who likes the kind of things that I like? Who would I enjoy spending time with? I want to go there and find that community. For me, it's difficult because there are no people like that. <laughs> but, but you get the idea, right? Whatever your hobby is, whatever you enjoy, you go find an affinity group and you become a part of that group. And over time, it gives you comfort because you're not alone. There's a lot of like-minded people who think the way that you do and agree with you about stuff, which is community. But it's not biblical community, right? What God does when he builds community is not sort out difference so that only unity remains. He makes unity out of diversity, right? He brings differences into community in order to make oneness and wholeness. That's different. God's community also has God-given authority, like we've been talking about with magistrates, right? It's not organized like a 21st century democracy. Like God works differently than that. So his idea of community is different from ours. One of the reasons why we're longing for more community in the 21st century is because the thing we call community isn't. And again, we all can't always name those longings. So that's the logic of speaking that way. When you hear me say, this is a church where people longing for more grace, more depth, and more community, blah, 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 know that that's what we're pointing you to. We're, we're taking the, the longings we all have as human beings and bringing those to the cross of Jesus Christ and the most explicit expression of the way that that cross meets our most profound needs. That's what's going on. But there's also that third thing happening as well, seeking, finding, and sharing. And that's important too. So that's obviously a biblical idea, right? Seek and you shall find. We're encouraged to do this, to, to be seekers in order to be finders. 
The way that process works is we look for something, we seek something, we find it, and then we share it inevitably, like the woman at the well. This woman who goes out and does evangelism before she's even gone to evangelism training. Right? She doesn't even have a certificate. She just goes out and does it. She does to others what was done to her by Christ. Right? She just spreads it inevitably as a result of finding it. I think that's the dynamic that, that we've really lost touch with. We have a lot of ways of equipping you to share, and a lot of them we've had to come up with because people who haven't found something have a hard time sharing it. And oftentimes we're equipping people who've never found grace to go out and share it, which is how our churches can be very moralistic and very superficial, very focused on spreading the word. At Grace, one of the things we've tried to be disciplined about is insisting that, that we don't expect you to share something that you haven't found. We're not here to equip volunteers to just do the work of the kingdom without having met the king. Because we believe if you actually meet the king, you actually find more grace, more depth, and more community, you won't need a lot of training to share it. So if you're struggling to talk about it, maybe you've got to ask yourself, have I found it? Or do I need to reconnect with this thing that I think I already have? So again, that's the logic that's built into the way that we talk about ourselves. That we're seeing ourselves as disciples, but people who have this human longing that needs fulfillment. The church is a place where together we discover the answers to those yearnings, where we're expecting to genuinely find things and after having found them to share them. All of that is part of the vision of who we are. And it's important, I think, that we come back to that, that we, we realize that ironically, like in our very mission statements, the mission of our church is found. the name of our church is grace, then we actually have to be gracious. Uh, it's, it's on the sign, and we have to live up to our name and not make it hypocritical. There is a phrase that you sometimes hear in churches, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Have you ever heard that before? Orthodoxy is just right belief. Orthopraxy is right practice. So the idea is that if you want to live the right way, do the right things, just focus on believing the right things. Because if you have the right beliefs, then the right actions will naturally follow. And my friend posed the question, is that really true? It's like, I've heard people say that, but when I think of the experiences that I've had in church and, and the things that I've witnessed, it's all been in churches that were orthodox churches that, that believed in the right things and preached the right things, but some of the things that were done were not right. And that was the, the challenge that he was trying to, to process. Like, how could it be that you could have right belief and not only not have right action, but sometimes have egregiously wrong action living side by side with it? And if you think about that reality, that's not unusual, right? There, there are 
examples you can think of, plenty of right-believing churches that don't necessarily seem to be right-practicing, right? where it doesn't seem like people are living up to their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. There are churches that have not only orthodox theology, but reformed orthodox theology. Like they shared the same theology as we do, the same <laughs> confession of faith that we do. And yet it doesn't always seem to lead to right practice. It doesn't always seem to lead to Christ-likeness, right? So that's something we need to think about. The theme here, the idea that I want to stick in your mind is this. Some of you have heard me say this before, but a theology of grace must create a culture of grace. Those two things not only should go together, but they have to go together. They must go together. If we have a theology of grace, then we have no excuse not to have a culture of grace too. If we have a theology of grace and not a culture of grace, I think it's the worst of all possible combinations. Because you have the answers on paper, but the way that you're living them out makes everyone think those must not be the answers. Because if I were looking for real answers, I'd never ask you. If I was looking for someone who who manifested Christ's self-sacrificial love, I would never turn to self-righteous blowhards for direction. I think that's a reality that, that we have to take very seriously because it's not as simple as just making a decision that, okay, we're going to have a culture of grace, not just a theology of grace. When you think about culture, culture doesn't just happen. right? Culture is, as the word implies, cultivated. Like cultures are, are made the way that gardens are made. Uh, they're not just random. Uh, if we want to have a culture of grace, we have to cultivate that just as much as we would cultivate the theology of grace that we cherish so much. But if you think about that, to work on our culture as much as we work on our theology, Theology is one of those things we, in our tradition, tend to take very seriously. And the idea of just focusing entirely on theology makes a lot of sense. Like, it warms my heart. If you had told me in my Baptist days, you're going to find yourself in a church where it's okay just to talk about theology all the time and not worry about any of the rest, I would have said, bring me there immediately. But now, I'm a little more mature than I was, and I recognize that, that you don't want orthodoxy without orthopraxy. Right? that you have to have the culture of grace to go with that theology. To have the culture, though, it has to be planted. Right? You have to plant these things. So we have to talk about not just what we ought to believe, but also what we ought to do, how to be gracious. But there's another aspect of it. You also have to do some weeding. I think the reason why we're surrounded by churches that preach a theology of grace, more or less, but don't live a culture of grace, don't create a culture of grace, is that we're not really focused on creating that culture. And when you're not focused on what's happening in your ground, you get weeds, because those don't need to be cultivated. 
right? That's sort of the, the natural direction of things. Now, human beings, when they get together, will take a natural direction, and it tends towards moralism, self-righteousness, feeling like we're the good people, and those people out there, they're the bad ones. And any church, no matter what its creed, whatever it believes, if left to its own devices, that's the trajectory that it's going to go in, which means that we have to push back against that. Like, if we want this to be a place where grace really flourishes, then we have to not only be gracious, but also kind of err on the side of grace and, and really make room for graciousness. And, and sometimes that means um, like tamping down our own sort of sense of self-righteousness, our own sense of certainty, our own sort of, I want everybody to believe the right things. Sometimes we've got to be comfortable with the idea that we're surrounded by people who aren't there yet, who believe different things, and that we're all here to kind of grow in grace together. So if we long for more grace, then we need a culture of grace just as much as we need a theology of grace. And a culture of grace and a theology of grace, they go together. been touching on a lot of fundamentals of the vision of our church and I want to say a couple of words about our emphasis on historic Christianity. Some of you have heard me use this quote before but I never get tired of saying it. The food writer Michael Pollan once wrote, you should never eat anything that your great-grandmother wouldn't have recognized as food. And I don't live by that advice, but I do see the logic of it. There's, there's something about the modern diet where we're eating all sorts of things that are made of stuff or colored in ways that no one in the past would have recognized as edible. That should give us pause. And oftentimes when I make that quote, I apply it specifically to the question of worship. I'll say something like, we should never do anything in worship that our great grandmothers wouldn't have recognized as worship. I have this fear, maybe an irrational one, that the apostles will discover a time machine and come forward to one of our church services and not realize we're having church, not see anything that's a point of contact to their experience of what it was like to worship Christ. And I won't say it keeps me up at night, but it does make me feel that it's important that our worship, even though we're 21st century people, have a connection, a grounding in the ancient faith. But I think we could make that point more broadly and say it's not just important to us that our worship be historically rooted, but that our faith be historically rooted. It's not just that I don't want to do things in worship that ancient Christians wouldn't have realized was worship. I also don't want to believe things that ancient Christians would have thought are incompatible with the Christian faith. If you go to the Grace website, we struggle to kind of define who we are. Some people hate labels. I think labels are helpful. It's just that you need a whole bunch of them to really dial in the explanation. But there's four words that you'll find on our website that we use. One is orthodox, one is reformational, one is liturgical, and then finally Presbyterian. 
Orthodox just means right belief, right? We believe what Christians have always believed. We believe in the faith that's embodied in the ancient creeds of the church. Reformational grounds us in the doctrine of the Reformation itself. Liturgical speaks to that question of worship and the groundedness of worship. Presbyterian, obviously, to our polity, to our church government. But these are all ways to describe who we are so that it's possible not only to understand us, but also to know, like, what are the, the values we're trying to hold on to? Like, what are the things that we're, we're struggling to be? Because there's a lot of pressure on us as 21st century people not to be any of those things. There's a lot of pressure on orthodoxy, a lot of pressure on Reformation theology, a lot of pressure, certainly, on, on liturgy and a lot of pressure on Presbyterianism. It's easy to be something else. And so if we're going to maintain those things, we have to strive for them. We have to hold on to them. And all of those things, you could sum up with this word historical. You know, I love history, and so to me, anytime you say, well, this is the historical option, you've won the argument doesn't matter what it is. You just tell me, historically speaking, this is the way it was. And I'm like, yes, I'm sold. That's great. You know, it's like I'm wearing pants. Uh, but if you tell me historically, Christians wore togas, I'd be like, yes, togas, of course. I, we need to get back to togas. You know, that's just the way I am. I have that assumption that whatever it was like at the root must be the right thing. Now, I recognize there's development over time. And I also recognize there are cultural differences as well just as scripture does. So I'm not saying we have to go back and dress the way they dressed. I'm not saying we have to speak the language that they spoke or anything like that. But I do think it benefits us as believers to have a sense of our connectedness to them and to their experience and to the faith that was handed down to them because it keeps us grounded. You've heard me talk about uh, the confession of faith and the value of confessionalism as being an anchor outside of time, that having a confession of faith helps us when the wind of doctrine blows this way or that way to stay connected to our historic faith. You find yourself thinking the way people think these days, and then suddenly the Westminster Confession comes along and says, no, 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 that's not the way Christians think. And it, it pulls you back. Or it, it anchors you. I think it benefits us as a church to have a sense of that that goes beyond just our confession of faith, that actually extends more broadly. We recognize Christians before us weren't idiots. They knew things. They thought about things. And maybe the way they thought about things should inform the way we think about things. We imagine that we face all sorts of unprecedented questions, that the challenges for Christians today are are different than they ever were before, and that if there are any answers, it's up to us to discover them. Only a profound historical ignorance would ever let you think that way. The answers to the questions that we wrestle with oftentimes are actually found in our history. And the more historically rooted we are, the easier it is to find them. So at Grace, we are determined, we are striving to practice the ancient faith of Christianity, even though we're doing it in the 21st century. We're not anti-modern, but we are a little anti-modernism. 
because we are people kind of grounded outside of the isms of our moments. I'll give you some terms that are used in theology. So the kind of church we are, the kind of Christians we are, a word that's often used is retrieval, that we're trying to retrieve a theology of the past. Instead of just being sort of believers of our moment, we want to be anchored to, to retrieve that legacy from before. But we're not doing it for, here's a great word, repristination. Repristination. I love that word every time I hear it, ironically, because it, it's never used positively. Like everyone always says, we're not doing repristination. So repristination would be to make something pristine again. So no one ever says our goal is repristination in scholarship. It's always we're, we're careful to avoid that. In other words, we're careful to imagine there's a golden age in the past that we can just sort of drag forward and just do things the way they did them and it'll all be perfect. So that's not the point of going back. The point of going back is to be helped and informed in living the Christian faith in the times Christ has actually called us to. Like, here's where we are. We're not meant to live outside of our age. We're in our age, but we want to be conscious of those who went before us. So we're retrieving this theology that's embodied in the Westminster Confession, not so that we can put it in a museum, put it behind a rope and say, look at the beautiful theology. We're retrieving it so we can put it to use and actually practice this faith. That's the importance of historic Christianity. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Commentary. If you've enjoyed it, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsuefalls.org.